Hey listeners, it's Keith from Evertrue. Evertrue is the end-to-end solution for insight, outreach, and analytics for higher ed advancement and stewardship teams around the world. Recently, we launched Evertrue Studios, Advancement's very first media hub, where subscribers have access to over 100 hours of free, on-demand original series and podcasts, all created with fundraisers in mind. Check us out at evertrue.com backslash studios. Hi, I'm Erin. And I'm David. And this is Talking Shop. And today we're going to be talking about zombie proposals. <laughs> Tell me about what a zombie proposal is, Dave. So, so a zombie proposal is a proposal that has been stuck and is effectively lifeless, um, not moving at all. And I'll be honest with you, so I, I have gone through dozens of portfolio reviews with staff members over the last 20 plus years, looking at their proposals and having them walk through where they are toward the, you know, getting a, you know, an ask or making or getting the donor to make a gift. And so many of them are just stuck mm-hmm. and they're stuck in a certain place, lots of different places, but there's a few in particular where they get stuck. And then I had this vision as I was you know, looking at all these names, I could see they're stuck in the same status for 500 days or 700 days. Jeez, yeah. And they just reminded me of like the walking dead where they're just walking around lifeless with nothing, no movement right. at all. Nothing will slow, nothing will get this to, to come back to life. And I thought, these are like zombies that are just out there. Not the donors. Not it has nothing to do with the donors. I have to be very clear about that. <laughs> yes. This has zero to do with the person we're talking about. This is entirely about the the, the solicitation itself, right? Or the proposal process itself, and they just get stuck. And so, while talking with a friend of mine, we decided there's a, we should we should try to see if we can do something about this, right? And to just clarify for those of you listening, I, I've known Dave a long time. I know how you manage people. I know how you manage managers, everyone that we're talking about, we're talking about people who are continually looking at these lists, right? So it's not to say that they just forgot for 500 days. It's to say they are having meeting after meeting with their manager, going over the portfolio and still kind of, you know, advocating for keeping it open. That's right. And and you know what I love about fundraisers is that they are optimists. Yeah. If you're a pessimistic fundraiser, usually you're not very good. Right. I'm sure there's a handful out there, but I I have not met many, if any, that are really good and pessimistic. So yeah. they're optimistic that, and they have a lot of what I like to call cold cases. Um, <laughs> these are prospects that they think are going to make a gift that have not yet. And I'll, I'll be honest with you, I have my own cold case. There's a donor that I worked with at a previous institution who got a law degree from my current institution. And I have now been working for 18 years to close the seven figure gift with the same person <laughs> because I'm an optimist. He is my zombie proposal, but I stick by it and I continue to engage him and I know he's going to do something. So, uh, so we all have these, but the problem right. is when you look at them in the aggregate, it clutters up the, the overall proposal a list that your your institution is managing. Exactly. And there's huge opportunity cost. And a lot of it isn't because donors are reluctant to give. It's because fundraisers are not managing effectively the proposals that they have in the system. Right. So basically, and I think this can be hard, particularly for um, people who have, you know, less experience. Just the, the, balance between, um, well, what we like to call at Evertrue polite persistence, right? So you're trying to be persistent, but you're not trying to be irritating. You're not wanting them to feel um, pressured in any way. 
you just want them to know that you haven't forgotten them and um, and you want to kind of keep the institution top of mind. That's right. And so I, what I did is I had this I had this anxiety and our head of prospect research and management, Brock Sylvie, who's great. And I we he, we he noticed this even ahead of me because he would say how many, he would see how many proposals were stuck for 100 days, 300 days, 500 days in the same status. You know, they maybe someone was solicited, but they haven't been it hasn't been declined. It wasn't funded. We didn't get the gift. Right. Um, but they're still stuck in that stage. And he would talk to fundraisers like, oh, I'm, I need to call that donor. I need to call her. I need to call him. All these things, but no movement. So what we decided to do was to, first of all, see how pervasive the problem is. But then mm-hmm. we learned, we, we talked to Brajesh Johnny, our, one of our brilliant analytics folks, to say, help us understand what's going on. And what, what Brajesh did, which was so smart, was to first understand what does the proposal life cycle look like? Mm-hmm. You can't tell, determine if something is a zombie. Right. If Unless, you don't know how long it's going to supposed to last in each stage. Right. Exactly. And we don't, we're not prescriptive in this way, but we are trying to provide like best practices or at least give people a sense of what is the average time from when you open a proposal, which is the, in our shop, it's when you, you identify Jane Doe and you decide, I'm going to ask Jane for a gift of a million dollars. It's going to be, I'm going to ask her in 13 months from now. Um, and it's going to be for financial aid. Uh, you know, I think she'll probably give 750. And I think it'll close in about 15 months. So all the details you need to, to sort of open and manage a proposal, right? Yeah. And so we looked at that and we looked at, we had 10 years of data because we had just finished a really big campaign at Northwestern. And so we looked at all 10 years of data. We had thousands of proposals. I should say we, Brajesh, to be clear, looked <laughs> at thousands of proposals to understand the proposal life cycle. And we looked at both medians and averages. We didn't separate um, repeat business, meaning we didn't separate people who had already made major gifts because oftentimes when they make when donors make second, third or fourth gifts or, or beyond, those gifts can happen very quickly. Yeah. And first gifts often have take a long time. Um, so I, I'll take the average instead of the median because I think that's that incorporates both in a certain way. So if you look at the average donor, um, you know, from the time that you open a proposal for an outright gift, it's about nine months till they make an ask. It's a little bit longer for planned gifts. It can go as long as long as a year. Mm-hmm. And then the next thing we looked at is, and this for me is really important because it's those people who have been solicited who haven't made a gift. So we looked at what is the time, the average and the median time from uh, from ask to close. And the median is about two months. But the average is about four months. Okay. So from the time you ask a donor to the time they, the gift close, the average is about four months for outright gifts. For planned gifts, it takes a little bit longer. It might be as much as three months in the median, six months in the average, depending on what type of planned gift it is. So we now know that, let's just say the average proposal from beginning to end is about 13 months uh-huh. for most outright gifts, right? Can I ask you first, did, did the nine months of um, prep, surprise you at all or was that what you expected it was smaller than i thought shorter than i thought Mm -hmm. i would have suspected a little bit shorter Uh, you know i tend to think that people in their first year should get a grace period because they don't really know much right um you know the median really surprised me because it was really brief but then i remember that like um i sometimes like even today um even just before we started this podcast (laughs) you said listen to me talk to a donor who called Meaning, I love it when they call me and want to make a gift of between a quarter and a half a million dollars. I have to pause this podcast for a second and tell you, tell the audience this story because it was just so delightful to me. Um, I was not trying to eavesdrop on this call, but 
clearly Dave was closing a major gift during this phone call and I could kind of hear the donor's voice through the phone and I can't tell you how many times I heard her thank you. And I thought that is good fundraising right there when the donor is thanking you repeatedly for the experience of giving a gift. Well, I think mostly she's just happy that I called her back. I think because so. <laughs> apparently she had called her general line and they hadn't called her back. So, so I was, it's it, sometimes it's good to be in the right place at the right time and to have your name on the website. Um, but no, but sometimes gifts happen really quickly. Yeah. Right. So yeah. you have to account for those that happen very, and I have, there's a number of donors I work with, particularly people who have made lots of gifts and big gifts. Yeah. Those negotiations can take a couple of weeks and it'll happen very fast. Right. It's important to know those. And sometimes first time donors will take a long time, right? And my cold case has taken 17 years. So it still hasn't <laughs> closed. So I, so I get that, but it was, it was important to understand those types of things in order to understand. And it was shorter than I thought it would be. And that's helpful actually. Yeah. So now we can start to better understand our process. So then what Brajesh did was to try to understand how do we mitigate the degradation of proposal probability, meaning once and once you make an ask, the likelihood that that gift will close degrades about 5% per month every month right? down to nearly zero after nearly a year if you don't do anything. Mm-hmm. And so he looked, he created using several thousand proposals, he created a predictive model and he looked at all of the activities in our database that he could look at and say, when you do this or you don't do this, this is what happens to the likelihood that this proposal is actually going to be funded and turn into a gift. Right. Mm-hmm. And there were some really interesting takeaways, not all surprising, but some very surprising. So here's what we learned. Like as soon as um, you open the proposal in our system, there's a 64% chance that the gift will close. And that tells you, well, that, 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 first of all, it's not necessarily the probability of the ask turning into a yes. That's what we, that's the probability that you'll even get the ask and it will turn into an ask and to a yes. Right. And we know that about 30 to 40% of our proposals, maybe 35% have or melt away at some point. Right. They just don't actually happen. You think you're going to ask someone and it doesn't happen. So that indicates there's proposal melt from the beginning and that some prospects just aren't going to do anything. Then we looked at when the ask occurs and, you know, after that period, if you do nothing, it degrades pretty pretty quickly, as I said. It mm-hmm. doesn't degrade as much initially, but it degrades pretty rapidly after the ask is made if nothing is done. Yes, like a precipitous drop we're talking precipitous about. Precipitous drop, yeah. So it's literally almost 5% a month. It's not exactly that, but this, again, is based on our own data. So it might right. differ depending on who you are, where you work, but this is our data. However, there are ways to mitigate this, and that's what we found really fascinating because we want to we want to find tools to make our fundraisers more successful, and we want to raise more gifts. Right. And so the, the things that he looked at were when you make a phone call, when you send a dean in, when you send another fundraiser to meet with them, when you send an email. Right. Some of those things mattered. One of them didn't. So the things that mattered were a phone call, uh, an in-person visit by you, by a, by a colleague, by a dean, by some other liaison, for the, a volunteer. Mm-hmm. All of those things improve the likelihood. You're actually, your probability goes up. When you're engaging after the solicitation mm-hmm. and it goes down if you're not. The one thing that doesn't have a material impact on the probability, sending an email. <laughs> and I want to say this to our teams and say, I love email. Well, I hate email because I had a thousand a day, but I send emails to people all the time. It's a really efficient way to communicate. Right. Guess what? 
it is not going to move your proposal forward. Yeah. It had a 0% impact on the probability that it was going to, like the gift is going to close. So what we know is you need to schedule time to actually have a dialogue, not a monologue. And the dialogue involves you or someone else talking to the prospect. And even after a year using his model, using several thousand examples, as long as people continually engage that every month or every other month and keep talking to their prospects, mm-hmm. the probability stays high, much higher than it is when you just open the proposal. Interesting. So actually people become more likely over time, assuming that you're keeping that contact. That's right. And so our That's takeaways are we want to, we want to look at these and create some tools so the fundraisers can, can really understand who among their prospects are likely to give, who are not, and which ones are zombie-esque. Mm-hmm. And so the, the next step was, what have we used, how do we use this data? Right. How do you use it to encourage people to avoid um, having that drop. That's right. Or to figure out, A, which are your zombies and what do you do about them? Mm-hmm. So we then had him score everybody in our database that has a proposal proposal, which was fantastic because, I mean, it's a dynamic thing. Obviously, some proposals are closing all the time. Right. Uh, zombies are not, then by definition, that's why they're <laughs> zombies. So we looked at the proposals and we were able to, to try to understand which ones, and we're just now about to start meeting individually with each of, actually, I guess we've been doing it for the last several weeks, meeting with fundraisers to say, these proposals look zombie-esque. These other ones are, in Brajesh's words, fine and dandy. <laughs> and the fine and dandy proposals are moving along at the, at the anticipated schedule and in the anticipated you know, way that you hope they would toward a gift, um, or sometimes toward a no, which is also helpful to understand. But the ones that are zombies can really clutter up the database. And there's two types. There's the types where you open a proposal, but you keep pushing out the ask date because you're not getting to, to that person. Right. And those are problematic. And as we talked earlier, those are opportunity costs. Right. You're focusing on a thing that you're not, you know, the more you push it off, the less likely you are to do it. And therefore, you're not really focusing on the things that could end up coming to fruition. You're focusing on something else that's kind of a pipe dream. That's right. And 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 sometimes it's, you know, for people like me who travel a lot, it could be I have prospects in the UK. So if I'm going to go to London to meet with them, they may not be there when I'm going in December. So right. I push that ask date back to maybe March or, or May, depending on when I'm there again. Right. That's really time consuming. You know, it takes sucks time and you're not you're not able to close gifts more rapidly and it affects your productivity and your institution's ability to raise money. So, you know, you, you've got to find ways to send surrogates to make sure that it doesn't degrade because if you're not seeing them personally, the likelihood is they may forget that you asked them. Right. right? And that's right. Our, sort of our standard. Do they even remember that I solicited them for a major gift at some point in the last, you know, month, several months or years for that matter? So there's that type, which is the pre-ask that keeps getting bumped. Then there's the ones that are even more concerning where you've asked someone for a gift and it's not closing. And so in that case... And I have some fundraisers on our team who have as many as a dozen, and I'm like, we have got to get these under control because they are, they are, you're not doing the relevant follow-up to move them forward, and they're distracting you from the other work you need to be doing in terms of the next level of solicitations. Right. And at some point, you're not managing, you're not actively managing your prospects effectively if you have that many open, or you prematurely solicited someone and they weren't ready. Mm-hmm. You know, and I don't know what the case is or why until we sit and kind of kick the tires on it, but it's important to understand what's going on. Yeah. And it's okay. I mean, the thing is that all of this stuff, we're all, all of us are still learning and growing. And, you know, sometimes 
you figure out, oh, I'm, I'm asking too early or I'm not asking early enough or, you know, whatever. I think that one thing that would be interesting to see, and I'm sure, um, people don't collect data on this yet, but it would be interesting to see when people push things off, you know, prior to the ask, is it situational to the donor or is it, um, more along the lines of, I'm just going to push this forward because I still haven't booked this meeting, right? Yeah. Because I, I would imagine that if you separate those two data points, the, the donor's um, circumstances would be a lot. Those that were paused because of donor circumstances are going to be a lot more likely to come in. 100%. And this goes to uh, when we talk about what makes a good fundraiser, you know, a cheery disposition is not, you know, the most important thing in my opinion. When you're, when you're hiring, that's sort of how we think about it. Right. That to me is not the most important thing. That it's helpful. That's not, you know, it's not great to be grumpy when you're asking for money. <laughs> Clearly. Yeah. You know, right. But, but I think the thing that, that differentiates great fundraisers from mediocre or just good fundraisers is their ability to project manage. Mm-hmm. And some of the people that I've worked with and some of the people that you and I collectively both have worked with have an extraordinary ability to manage so many different projects at once and keep them all moving along um, so effectively. And that to me is the real, that is the true um, differentiation between mediocre and great. Yes. And people who can manage, you know, between 30 and 40 different proposals at any given stage and do them all well and keep momentum on all of them, those are the people you should retain, promote, give a ton of money to. The other thing to mention here, and I always want to laugh because every time we talk about episodes, I never intend to make a plug, but <laughs> I always end up making a plug. So forgive me, everybody, but truly technology is, is such a, a revolutionary, uh, in tool in affecting this, um, type of, sorry, let me start that again. Uh, technology is so important in helping people along. So ever true being one example, but you have tools out there now that you didn't have a few years ago that actually help you with that cadence. So you don't even have to really keep everything on a list or keep a million post-it notes, you know, because some of us, and I'm raising my hand here, are not always good at multitasking um, unless we have some kind of help. And so I think that's good news because that means that more people can be effective. 100%. 100%. I think it's, I mean, technology has definitely helped. And, you know, I think every, about every university or nonprofit I know is at it's, it's some point, either in the next year or five years, going through some CRM conversion. <laughs> yep. <laughs> because they want better and new technology, but they also want all the add-ons that, like, your company does. Yeah. And I think that really is the, that is the holy grail, is to find the, the tools that help fundraisers be more productive, raise more gifts. Um, and some of this is just going to be who's the person doing it. Right. Because even technology can't force you to be good, um, but it can help you in terms of your follow through for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I want to tell you about something that we did actually. And by we, I mean um, my colleagues, Ron Eisenstein and Tim Anderson, and certainly not me. <laughs> I had no impact on this the at ro- all. It's the royal we. <laughs> but allow me to take credit for their work. <laughs> Um, Ron and Tim did this amazing analysis, similar but different to what uh, you did at Northwestern. Um, at, but it was really interesting. 
we broke it out by gift level. And we also looked at major gift behavior. So basically, we, we analyzed both what was the prior giving behavior of the donor? Were they a never donor? Were they an annual fund donor, et cetera, et cetera, all the way up to major donors? Not surprisingly, and to your point, people who've made a major gift before, much more likely to give again. The speed at which that happens is faster, et cetera. Um, which I think is notable because I think a lot of people, I'm surprised still how many people seem to think that people who have been asked for major gifts are kind of quote unquote done. You know, there's a reluctance to ask them and they are your best prospects for future major gifts. Well, that's the thing, 100%. I mean, my best prospects are the people who I've already worked with to make as many as a half dozen gifts over the last 10 years. And um, I know them. We have a shorthand um, in terms of working together. I know what their preferences are. And I know the, their hot button issues. And I know what their passions are. Mm-hmm. And they know they know that I know where to find information and we can do this quickly. So that's the trust that we've developed and it makes it go much faster. Um, but I think too many shops, fundraisers, and this is, you know, as you know, one of my pet peeves, have portfolios that are much too large mm-hmm. and they're not able to manage them. And yeah. I think this goes back to a big part of that, which is, you, if you if you've been in a place for a long time, you can still find new prospects, but you probably have a mature portfolio, and you can only manage so many at a time. Um, and depending on what your administrative role is, you're just not going to be able to do a lot of new qualification work. Right. You, you may have donors who do cycle out for any number of reasons. They they you know they may move on and may not be interested in your organization anymore. They may die. They may you know make their, their ultimate gift, meaning their bequest expectancy, but they're not probably yeah. going to do anymore. There's a bunch of reasons for that, but most of them you're hopeful they'll continue to give to you because it's not like their their philanthropic um, desire has fallen away just because right. they made a gift to you. Right. And I think that's the key thing is the, the best fundraisers in our shop are the people who've been there a while. And I, I was yeah. saying the other day, like I was doing analysis on this. You can't hire principal gift fundraisers. You grow principal gift fundraisers. Yeah. The people who are making the donors who are making the biggest gifts are working with fundraisers and academic leaders that they've known a long time, most of the time. Yeah. And so you can't hire someone in most of the time to come in and raise a bunch of big gifts. They might get lucky because they're staffing an academic leader who has those connections. But the kind of trust it takes to develop builds it takes years oftentimes. Absolutely. And that means you're only going to have so many people at any given moment that you're going to be assigned to that you're going to be soliciting. And that, that is exactly the point. I 100% agree with you. Yeah. Um, by the way, um, when we did this analysis based on giving level, which I think probably um, correlates to your uh, planned giving data now that I think about it, because of course, the bigger the gift, the more likely it is to be plan- a planned gift. But when we looked at that data, we um, we found the exact um, percent likelihood with each passing day that a proposal would or would not close. So we were able to, you know, advise our development officers right now, you know, they're not saying we don't believe you if you still think it's happening, but right now there is a 4% chance of it happening just statistically, (laughs) you know, and it does help them. You're trying to convince me to get rid of my cold case (laughs) and it's not going to happen, but I appreciate the effort. You know how much I wish I knew how to do a Bill Curtis imitation right now. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But yeah, so I just, 
I don't think that we necessarily do. I do believe that fundraiser instincts are superior to just uh, statistics, you know, in the absence of context. But, sure. but I have to say that I do think that sometimes the reason we point this stuff out to fundraisers is not to berate them to close their proposals. We do it to give them a boost in confidence that they can cut that, that out and concentrate on something else. They don't have to feel like they have to invest more time just because they've already invested so much time. Yeah, I think it's, uh, what do economists call it, endowment effect? Um, it's, it's, it's harder to get rid of something you already have. Yes. And so yes. I think that's part of it. Um, it's like, and everybody says, oh, people hate fear of change. Nobody hates change. They hate loss. Nobody's scared of losing, you know, scared of winning the lottery. Right, right. Everybody would love to win the lottery. That's a, probably the biggest change you'd ever have in your life, especially right, right. now. But their fear of loss. And I yeah. think that's the same thing with fundraisers. And it goes to that same thing. Yeah, so. absolutely. Well, this has been really interesting. Um, I think, I hope that people feel inspired to, you know, this is not a podcast telling you to um, speed up your solicitations. It's not a podcast telling you to cut ties, um, you know, fish or cut bait, so to speak. This is about really just being intentional about when you're keeping those asks alive. You gotta, you gotta be mindful and keep, keep them well attended so that the portfolio stays, uh, fresh. That's right. That's right. Understand your data. Stay close to your donors. Talk to them a lot. Have other people talk to them when you can't. Mm -hmm. um, and you'll continue to improve. So, but with that, I've got to go work on my cold case and a few, <laughs> a few zombie proposals in my own portfolio. <laughs> All right. Thanks so much for listening. Uh, tune in next time on Talking Shop.